Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Well, we are very lucky to have uh, Andreas Klinger. Um, Andreas Klinger is a former founding team at Product Hunt, uh, head, head of remote at uh, AngelList, was at CoinList uh, in between, and now is his own uh, fund, uh, Remote First Capital. Uh, Andreas, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's this uh, great Dave Chappelle clip about, uh, about Ja Rule in the, in the time of crisis, uh, 9-11. Andreas, have you seen this clip? No, I don't think so. Basically saying that we, we all ask for celebrities like um, Ja Rule is this like washed up rapper. He's pretty good. I don't mean to denigrate him, but uh, everyone always wants to know what celebrities think in time of crisis. And the joke is like, why do we care what Ja Rule thinks about 9-11? Like he's, he just, he's a musician. And so, uh, so Andreas, I ask you, what's going on with coronavirus? What's your, what's your hot take? Uh, this is, you know, asking the celebrity about, uh, well, I'll, I'll narrow the question a little bit. Obviously, coronavirus is way bigger than, than remote work. But um, does this merely accelerate what was already going to happen and just make it quicker? Or does it change the fundamental structure of how we were thinking about it? Yeah, yeah. So first, as an expert for medical stuff and virus, <laughs> because I read the New York Times yesterday, like a short article, I think a worldwide deadly pandemic, pan- pandemic is a bad thing. Uh, that's my professional expert opinion. Uh, I don't know much more about this, a part of that. <laughs> so that's like, if you want, like, yeah, that's as much as an expert opinion I can give on that topic. The situation we are in is kind of weird because... Yay, a lot of people work more remote now. Not so much yay. It's like everybody's forced to do it. Everybody's forced to do it from zero to one within one day. Everybody has kids at home if they have kids, you know, and everybody has like really bad work from home setup where they just constantly have back pain or sit on the couch for half a day, you know. Uh, So in reality, this is not so much about remote work. It's much more about emergency work from home setups in a way. And that being said, all of that with a big disclaimer that we are the few lucky ones that actually have the opportunity to do that. And there's a lot of people who have jobs where it's like impossible to bring them remote, at least yet, you know. So I'm personally think like a part of the fact that I think it would be nice not to have a pandemic in general, you know, I also think it won't create that that much of a positive impact on remote work than we think right now uh, compared to any other economic crisis. Because a lot of people will also have very negative experiences with remote work in general right now. And like a lot of stressed experience, we'll see that companies going down because of like this kind of forced setup, you know. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. I personally, I, I'm not, let's say it sounds stupid, but I'm not excited to have a global deadly pandemic right now. Yeah. Are, are there new startups that you are or that you are sort of considering for investment or that you're seeing pop up as, as a result of this? Or how's that remote work, uh, like startup ecosystem evolving yes and no like as an investor vc personally not so much because i don't think 
it's a forcing function for a lot of startups right now. Like if you have a somehow good enough idea, now a lot of people will try it. This doesn't make your ideas more sticky or better. You just have like no more, more, more traffic right now. So if you don't make the traction now, you will never make it. And maybe that's good, right? Uh, in reality, though, I currently, I talk to a lot of startups that now have the traction that they didn't have like three months ago, but the fundamental business behind didn't change. So it's still not a good venture case. It's maybe now a good case for angels to jump in, help with money, and then later on get dividends, you know? But it's not a good classic venture capital case because A, hopefully the pandemic is not happening for forever. And B, it's still not the team that came up with the really big game-changing ideas, you know? And it's still not the product that was this game-changing idea. So I have a ton more meetings, but I did not. I don't invest faster than I did before. That's, that's yeah. currently my stake. And regarding the negative experience, I mean, you're 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 particularly a fan of co-working space, right? Or of people getting in the same in the same place if they're in the same region, but just distri- more distributed work. Yeah. Or, or talk more about how that's different than sort of the current work from home setup that people. Have. Yeah, yeah. Like I personally don't like working from home, which is weird if people associate your stuff with remote work. Um, I believe the best setup you can have is like rent a small office with like four or five other remote workers, friends and work from there. doesn't need to be people in the same company. Maybe it's even better if they're not in the same company because then you can rent about the idiots in your company maybe, you know? Uh, but in my experience, this is a more professional separation. You know, it's like just a clearer boundary between private and professional. I personally enjoy that more than working from home. And I also could imagine this in the long run to become a default state for a lot of remote workers that uh, live in like, let's say cities or hubs, you know, where like having a flat that's big enough is just not reasonable or maybe they just don't want it. I don't see how you can make this a venture scalable business personally, because it's like, what do you actually offer as a product? But I can see this as a becoming a default pattern for a lot of people. Yeah. So a lot of people in on deck right now are going to start companies or starting companies, thinking about starting companies. What are the frameworks that they should have in, in, in mind in terms of whether or not they, they should start remote, to what, what, what extent, what part of the team should start remote? How, how should people, uh, companies forming now, not just in coronavirus, but in the next yeah. six months to a year, be yeah. thinking about you know, building remote? So right now I recommend starting remote uh, <laughs> <laughs> just for the safety of everybody. So like there's uh, a few misconceptions, for example, that you cannot do early stage as a remote team. I, I strongly disagree. Uh, a lot of people think of remote as like a binary concept, like you're remote or you're not remote. It's easier for you as a mental model to think of it like as on a almost like two by two or like an ex- two axis. One axis is like how close are you to the next hub of your team? And the other one is how distributed is the time, uh, how distributed across time zones is a specific team you work in. So a company has multiple teams and your specific team doing uh, for example, uh, mobile engineering is like only in one time zone and that's fine, you know, but like none of you is close to any of the hubs of your company or the regions, the cultural centers of your company. For a remote team, uh, for, for a startup, like starting out right now, it's similar. So like much more the time zones will become the problem than actually working not in the same place. I personally think there's a lot of value to actually meet to discuss stuff. Uh, a lot of discussions are actually more productive online, which is a conception that most people don't have because they assume brainstorming in a room is easier and better. In my reality, in my, in my experience, it's a lot of complicated discussions work better in documents and uh, additionally have meetings in person if you need them. So that's how I think about this as like a structure. Personally, I would recommend early stage teams to meet in person just to get like a lot of 
the nuanced discussions around pivots and product fit, uh, like that is usually easier in person, but it's not mandatory. So I don't think that the current cohort right now has any major disadvantage to previous cohorts of OnDeck. Yeah. Are there certain types of companies that are better suited to be remote than, than others? Consumer it's, enterprise? Yeah. yeah. It's the easier it is to get your team to be making autonomous decision, the easier it is to do this distributed. The reason is quite obvious because if people can make decisions on their own, they don't need to ping somebody else for like feedback. They don't, you don't need to micromanage them that much. Uh, you can solve this or fix this by having better processes and better clarity, better prioritization, better decision-making, blah, 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 all these management principles, you know, but the reality is still true. And I think because of that, a lot of the early big remote teams are all like developer-centric products because developers just knew kind of how to make decisions and went ahead, you know. And now we get to the point where like remote work becomes normal enough and experienced enough that you, like, different kinds like form. But it's still, if you have a big separation between the knowledge of the person actually implementing and the knowledge of the person talking, for example, to customer, you know, this is a communication bridge that you have to close, no matter if you're co-located or not, but it's easier if you're co-located. So that's how I would, as a mental model, think about this. So Product Hunt maybe had the best of both worlds in the sense that mm -hmm. it was is sort of distributed, but you guys were all near each other that you, you could meet meet um, in, in Europe. And it was the sort of engineering team um, that was distributed. And then the community team was was all in one place. How, how do you think about, is, is your take that it has to be, either be all distributed or all uh, in the same place? Or how do you think about that? So so personally, I think about like this, uh, you want to have, I think somebody's just mentioning this, like events on like, have a time zone overlap of like five hours roughly. And that usually means... West Coast, including Latin America, to East Coast Africa is like a good, uh, sorry, Eastern Europe uh, and Africa. This is kind of like a time zones that roughly work. If one group gets up early and the other group gets uh, stays up later, you know, and that's one of the core things. For example, the Europe, like the engineers in Europe, never met in person in Europe. Like we only met in America anyway. So it doesn't matter too much. It's much more about this time zone or whatever because. I think you can have enough meetings in a day if you have three to five hours of overlap and just schedule those meetings at that time. That's enough. And everything else you can do for documents and all this kind of stuff. I personally, I would be careful with having a completely asynchronous setup early, early stage in the product because it's a lot about nuances and details and all this kind of stuff. So if you consider, for example, having an engineer in Australia and another one in Europe and another one in, in the Philippines, you will have a lot of problems with like actually managing meetings. And I would just like stay away from that in the beginning. I don't know if you remember, but we had early on an engineer in Australia for iOS uh, who was amazing. He was like designer plus engineer, just like power, power machine, amazing person. But we struggled so much setting up the meetings and like just iterate fast enough on the iOS app. And early stage, this is just important to do. So we back then actually discontinued with him because of that. Yeah, Jono, I, I remember. What are some of the uh, failure modes that uh, early stage sort of remote or distributed teams face and, and best practices to uh, to address them or unique challenges to, to distribute? Yeah, I think the, the, the common thing that most people mention is just have complex discussions in docs instead of in person, you know? So if you have a complex problem, you want to deconstruct a complex problem by in, in a text and then have people read that and comment in line, like or comment like with, and like just give feedback on that. Because that's just easier than having two hour long Zoom call where everybody's literally dying because it's, oh my God, I cannot watch this person talk anymore. So 
that's uh, in my experience the most important one. In reality, though, a lot of people, especially now, over-index on best practices around remote work. I think this is complete BS. Remote teams have like years to optimize. And if you optimize your own productivity as a team for years and your own personal productivity for years, you have very strong opinions how shit should be done, right? But for you, when you start out, do whatever you, what works for you, that, and when it stops working for you, do something else, period. Like don't overthink this. Like you don't win by having the most amazing asynchronous communication tool that you internally use or like the most amazing whatever. There's certain inherent differences around not being in the same place and just try to be cognizant about them and address them. I know a lot of remote teams that do daily stand-up video calls. And I know a lot of remote teams that hate those things like to the bone. Both is fine. It depends on your team. I personally think the larger the team gets, the more experience the team gets with remote work, the harder it is to do this kind of stuff, you know, but doesn't mean that your team shouldn't do it. So I would just do like in the beginning, daily stand-up video calls to get everybody in the zone of focusing, you know, uh, and get a routine into those people in the early stage. And there's a lot of things where like, most of the best practices you will read around remote work, read them, try them, whatever. You know, those won't make or break your business. What will make or break your business is decision-making and focus on that. How should hiring distributed or remote be different than um, than if, if you weren't remote or distributed? What, what new practices or different practices or different approaches might you have to consider? Yeah. For context, like we built uh, at AngelList, we built uh, AngelList Jobs, which is essentially the largest job board for startups and the largest job board for remote jobs to startups. So you have different problems on the candidate and the company side. Good teams have the problem they get too much inbound. If you have that problem, it's already a good problem for you. So let's not worry about this for now. The bigger problems you have is it's for you really, really hard to evaluate international CVs. It's really, really hard for you to evaluate international talent. You know, there's cultural differences. Like if you talk to an engineer in San Francisco, holy shit, this person can talk about tech. You know, that person knows their shit. That person is amazing. And then when you actually get this person to program, you're like, wait, are you a programmer? Because I'm not sure anymore, right? So there is a cultural difference. If you talk to a person in Eastern Europe, there's a high chance that this person is super reserved and like just doesn't want to lose face in the first interview. If you talk to people in India, there's a very different cultural bias. If you talk to people in different parts of Africa, parts of Latin America, like different cultural biases that you are not aware of, you know, um, also like your own biases. So you, you look at the CV, you don't know the companies, you don't know the universities, you have no idea about anything there. You, you talk to them and you read them most likely a little bit wrong, you know. So what are you left with? And in my opinion, what you should focus on is as quickly as possible, get to real work. I highly recommend contract to hire. And I think everybody in this uh, Zoom call has good experience with contract to hire. Get a specific project. Get this project in the hands of like uh, this one candidate you think is interesting. Ideally, get this candidate through somehow network recommendation. Early stage, you can do that. Give them this little project. Do it together with them. If it works, it works. Move on. You know, Don't overthink your early stage hiring process in that case. A lot of people say it's super important who you hire. I fully agree. But... Nobody tells you how to do good hiring. And it's so hard to interview people like really good. So in my opinion, what I would do early stage and also later stage in remote team is check if you can work with this person, talk with this person, you know, get them real work, uh, make sure the rest of the team likes them and like can work with them and wants to work with them. And afterwards, like as I have usually the ultimate check, which is like, do I personally think this person is better than me in what they like as an engineer. Like I'm an engineer myself and I only hire engineers where I think 
I want this person on the long run to lead parts in our company because that's early stage what's going to happen. Like that's what's something I do. You might not need that, but like get real work as quickly as possible yeah. in their hands. Say, say more about some of the stuff that you did at Product Hunt mm-hmm. that, that really worked because you, you hired some of the engineers who, you know, are the best engineers at, at AngelList today and are, are still there, you know, four or five years later. I mm-hmm. thought you had some sort of like mafia or, you know, uh, way to way to find these people. Talk, talk about some of the things you did well and, and maybe talk about some of the lessons learned or, or things that maybe because times have changed, you do differently in 2020 than, you know, 2015. So one thing I always do is, um, there's like two things I try to do. Uh, number one is be cognizant about the role that I'm actually looking for, the person I'm actually looking for, and have a clear understanding what they need to do like in the near future and in the midterm. It's very easy to come up with like, I need a full stack engineer to do full stack engineering, but that's not what you currently need. You currently have a very specific problem, you know, or like a challenge that you might already have solved half step, you know, but this is what you currently face and try to get people who can help you with this and the logical future versions of this and the iterations of that. Because if you're unexperienced with hiring, that's much more easy for you to have a conversation around this than to about like some abstract philosophical problem or whatsoever, you know, that's number one. So like being very aware what I'm actually looking for. And the number two I did, which I personally would also recommend is trying to have a balance in your team. So you want people with different skill sets. I'm talking specifically now engineering, but this is true for the whole company with different kinds of skills and interests and backgrounds. So that can mean, for example, you want some engineers who are really good and really like complex, hard engineering problems. And you want some that are really like, they really understand the customer POV and really understand like the UX problems you face uh, but still can do a little bit of everything. You know, you want some engineers who can help you with specific problems and whatever your core functionality or core infrastructure is, you know, you want to have people who are really good in that aspect, that aspect, and have this mix and ideally have a mix that's overlapping. So don't have like this one person who can do your infrastructure. You have to have a setup where everybody can do a little bit of everything, but you have one or two people who are kind of the best and define how it should be done. Totally. How do you know when you need to hire someone extra or versus when you don't need, like how did you at Product Hunt determine this is the right size of the engineering team or, hey, we need another hire for this? Or? In almost all cases, your productivity sucks and you don't need to hire more people. And that's, I would go with that mindset. Just assume that you currently don't have the output that you could do and try to come to that output. Once you're like, kind of like, okay, we, we're now tackling stuff that we don't know how to do, try to tackle it. Meanwhile, try to hire people because then you already understand the actual problem. You know, don't hire somebody for something you don't understand. Try to do it early on on your own or have somebody in your team you trust, have them do it and then hire people once this gets too much or too complicated and so on and so on. Always assume that you are just underperforming right now. And once you see like work that can be isolated and problems that you're facing where you can dedicate like somebody and you should dedicate somebody, try considering hiring around that. Always over-index on not hiring. That's like my biggest advice to anybody. Uh, it also forces your team to step up. And one thing that Naval told me, which I love as an expression and is so hard to do, and it sounds like a, like a, like a tweet that sounds amazing. It's actually like an asshole thing to say, but it's kind of true. Fire good people to make space for great people. There's always, you have people join you as a part of their career. They will come to your company. They join you for like one year, two years, three years, four years. At some point, people will leave, you know, and that's like just normal. And you should expect this anyway. And you should just like help them if they are like 
um, want to transition, help them transition. That's one aspect to this. The other aspect to this is at some point you might hit the point where this person, like it's not the right fit anymore what your company is doing. I'm not talking about your company is now growing that much or whatever. It's just like this person is a junior engineer. Early on, you had enough work for this kind of junior engineer. This person is it. It is. But this person isn't getting to the level that you currently need. You don't have the resources to staff that many people. You need to replace this person. That's completely normal and understandable, you know, but do that early on. Like, like have this always like in your back of your mind, like, is this a person I would rehire? And if not, like replace a good person with a great person. Anyone can take that tweet. It's, it's uh, open. Whoever takes it first. Uh, Andreas, talk more about what you did on, on the productivity side in terms of dividing up the work or best practices around making sure that you were getting the, the most output from, from your different inputs. Yeah, this, uh, there's 99% of that is management one-on-one. Most problems you will face in your company have more to do with you than with your team. So that means things like if you struggle trusting your people that they do their work, that means you did something wrong. It means that you didn't set up the processes right. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to evaluate their work. The expectations are not clear. You don't have ways to define what is success, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. Or they just don't know what this company is actually supposed to do because you change your mind every three weeks, you know? So most of the problem you will face in your company and most of the productivity problems which you face in a company will have to do with the founding team. And that's kind of the reality of that. You can think of it that way, saying like people times context is output and you're in charge of the context, you know? Your job is to make sure they have the context to actually succeed. And there's like million of million lines and books of advice on how to do that. Like read all of that, ignore all of that, pick the ones you think is right. You can anyway only succeed in your way and you cannot succeed in somebody else's way. So just like, like consume all of that, you know? You mentioned 99% of his management, one, uh, you know, one-on-one sort of Andy Grove stuff and stuff that's emerged from that. Is there the 1% that's the, uh, like what's the Andreas-ism or something that's sort of unique to what, how, how you, you approach it? Uh, decision layering is one of the number one things I would look at is be sure like early on, this is not so much a problem because everybody, everything, right. But it's still like, what is your responsibility as a founder? What is the responsibility of this other person, the other person, you know, and think of it like what decisions can you push down uh, as much as possible? And we have this weird thinking of like an hierarchy within a company, which is like this, what is called in English, the, the, the organigram of like the people, you know, and the, the boss is in the top and everybody's in the bottom, you know? In reality, the people in the bottom are doing the actual work and talking to the customers and they're handling the product. They know more about what should be done than the people above. The reason why we have this weird setup is because that's how communication usually works, you know? And communication has complexity problems. One thing I would try is like in your head, flip this around and see how much of the decision-making can you push to those people and what decision you should not push to them because that's just lazy. One thing I did once was like, I taught my, like I just was like previous startup. I asked my uh, marketing person to define the vision of the company because we needed one for the website. Imagine this person being now like joining like two weeks before, you know, being completely stressed out about like, I don't fucking know what the vision of this company is. Like I can't just write some random text here. you know. And then she wrote some random text. I was like, yeah, this doesn't, no, 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 I don't disagree. I disagree. You should write this differently. You know, like write this differently this person freaked out, you know, like completely freaked out. I, understandable. Like that's not her job. And that's like, that's almost like a low stake thing. You know, that's like just write a text for a homepage. doesn't matter worst case, you know, but a lot of us do this for a lot of other things because we go back to our comfort zones. So as a founder, if you're an engineer, you like coding, you know, 
I noticed I always code if I don't try to face a real problem. You know, maybe you do the same. If you're a business-centric founder, you like to have meetings. You like to have uh, dinners, maybe not now, but like in general, you know, you like to talk to investors because that's fucking awesome. And like, you feel special and they make you feel like appreciated, you know, especially Eric, of course. You like to go um, on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> but in reality, all of them are a waste of your time, most likely 99%, especially Eric, obviously. And <laughs> so you do this because it's your comfort zone. You know, I had a co-founder who was designer who was like, we had like stress and he started like tuning our logo. Of course, <laughs> it's his comfort zone, you know? <laughs> but uh, as a founder, you don't have the luxury of always going back to your comfort zone. Like this is something you can let team members do from time to time, you know? But as a founder, you don't have this luxury. So like think about like, am I doing this right now? Because if yes, you'd have this decision layering and it's currently broken. You're not doing the things that you should do and you push those things you don't want to do to like or like basically non-done decisions you push to other people and therefore like bring them into a bad situation that can mean you change your mind that can mean you didn't make up your mind can mean you didn't figure out the product market fit or the sales you ask somebody to do sales before you even know what the product is this is something i did multiple times in my life you know yeah uh you ask somebody to mar make marketing for your product before you have uh, product market fit or retention you know so you basically don't do your job and now you ask other people to do their job and they just struggle doing it. That, that If you want like the 1% Andreas advice, it's like, do your fucking job. That's my yeah. 1%. Tweet that too. Uh, comp. So uh, especially if you do, you know, contract to hire, how do you think about uh, equity uh, conversations? Do you have it early? Do you have it later? Um, comp in general for distribute hire. Yeah, I suck in that. Uh, it's really, really hard. Uh, so if you struggle coming up with good comp across like, uh, different regions and different talents really hard everybody struggles with this so um i will tell you the beautiful version and i will tell you the reality okay so the beautiful version is look at uh for example the model that buffer or gitlab are doing like uh, have regional based uh, sorry have a base salary brackets for each kind of role and have regional multipliers and skill and talent and experience multipliers on top of that. There's a lot of people saying we pay equal to everybody everywhere. And if you look, most of those hire either not many people or they only hire in the Western world reality. You know, so I there's some pe people who manage to still do it with like global teams. And like, I, I appreciate that. But even those usually don't pay San Francisco salaries. They say we pay San Francisco salary and then pay a senior like $130,000. Like that's not a senior salary in San Francisco, especially not for like a really experienced senior. Uh, base salaries, regional multipliers. This is like, and look at Buffer and GitLab, right? So now comes the reality part of that. You're a startup, like, like fuck other people, fuck their compensation, fuck everything. You need to get this thing actually to work, you know? So you want to pay fair and that's important. You want to have like, a, like it's much more about internal fairness and about the position that those people can actually focus on work and that they can actually, um, let's say, have a comparable lifestyle to each other, you know? Um, if your company raises more money, increase the salaries, like try to be market competitive and so on and so on. But quite frankly, quite honestly, you can't pay amazing salaries early on and you shouldn't try to, uh, in, in my personal opinion. I would, instead of hiring expensive people in San Francisco, which have to charge 100K, 200, like 150K plus, Consider hiring talent in flyover states, Latin America, uh, in Africa, in Europe. Consider hiring those people for 50 to 120K and 
in most cases, you will have a fair salary in that range and then discuss equity additionally, uh, which is a by itself a own discussion. So I would do that. So if I would, for example, right now start a new company, I would think of like, how low can I get this to be still fair to the people that are that join me? Because in the reality, the worst thing that can happen to them is that they trust you, they join you. And then afterwards, they have a C, like they have two years on their CV of a company that nobody ever heard of, went nowhere, or like one year of a, of a company that went nowhere is completely a f- obvious failure because you just didn't manage your budget right and you didn't make this company succeed. And that's worse to them than having like a lower salary, in my opinion. Totally. And and, and let's just double down on equity for a second. What do you say to people who asked early on about it? I, I, I don't have a good answer to that. I, I think you have a stronger answer to that than I do um, because you have more market transparency. And this is something I always struggle with. So if, if other people struggle with this as well, I feel you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I don't have a, a great answer to it. I think it's easier to have different uh, salary based on pe- people leave. I, I, I think the equity argument isn't necessarily, um, like I think you can, if the person is just as good, I think you can, I mean, it's just I, a negotiation really. Yeah, I have the same POV. Like I'm more... Like equity, I would pay comparable to everybody, uh, depending on their skill set. Salary, I would pay comparable to the living cost of living, you know. Um, and that might doesn't make sense. I don't know, but like that's how I emotionally think about this and how I would approach this. Another good thing about equity is you have vesting schedules. So if they don't work out, you can fire them, and all of that problem is solved. You know. That being said, don't overpromise equity because it's almost impossible to afterwards renegotiate lower. It's easier to agree on something that you feel is like a little bit too low and then give them a bump up if they step up. That's easier, you know, than the other way around, which is I tried this once. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and and the best practices for for the contract work, is it just find a project that's that's somewhat meaningful, put a time, you know, is it a week? Is it two weeks? Like what are best practices around the contract? work itself um depends on the stage you're at what, what i would do is you currently have a challenge that you might have already half solved solved you know you might have a new challenge something you really really understand use this in your interviews to just gauge how people think about this this is step one and when you actually isolate contract if you're really early it doesn't need to be like a completely isolated project it can be core part of what you do you know because you don't have the luxury of saying you know what you start a mobile app we don't need it right now but like whatever Right? You don't have this luxury. So it could be or should be a core part of what you do and gives them more responsibility early on. One big mistake that I did, which I would highly recommend being careful with, is if you are talking to people who are freelancers and contractors, they have an hourly rate. And that hourly rate is um, relative to the fact that they won't work the whole week because clients only book them for like two days a week, maybe, you know, and then they have like one week of nothing because they didn't have a client the hourly rate or daily rate usually tries to compensate for that. When you talk with somebody and say like, hey, we want to do this project with you, realistically, this is one month or two months, you know, this won't, uh, or like even if it's two weeks, try to agree on weekly or monthly salary that's comparable to a future's full-time salary, then divide and multiply like, let's say 1.3 to be fair and do that instead of multiplying the normal hourly rate. It sounds obvious, but I did it like multiple times. I didn't do it. And multiple times I had like freelancers afterwards saying, no, I want to stay freelancer because yeah. it's good money. Yeah. The, how did you find your, your best distributed hires on sort of, you know, taking editorial liberty, like Rado and Vlado? Like how, how did you, were these people obvious? Were they not obvious? Were they through your network? How, how did you find them? So the best hires I did were like, number one is through network. 
which can mean previous companies I worked at and like people that I trust um, and ideally people you worked with previously, like all of that is obvious, right? Um, we hired uh, one amazing engineer through uh, actually going through um, our API. So at ProductCount, we had an API. And what I did is like I literally printed, like I, I exported the 300 developers that requested keys. And I went through everybody's GitHub and like online presence and just like passively, they didn't know that. But I just like looked at everybody of them, like this is a person that would be awesome to talk to for a job, you know? I don't know if you can do that. I know companies that do this with customers. So they, they're just like, hey, you're using our product. You seem amazing. Can we talk to you about like joining us? You know, maybe there's other ways to do that. Like, so I had a good experience with that. The other ones I had good experience were freelancers that were recommended to me. And then we just switched them to full-time. That was something. That I also had experience with just general job posts and just like doing that funnel. The only problem you have with that is you will have a lot of, inbound and this inbound is something you have to work through and that takes a lot of time and like doing all these interviews takes a lot of time early on i would try to avoid this by being aggressive on the filter through your network because it, it, you, you suck in interviewing anyway like let's be honest like i suck in interview you know and i do this for years and additionally you don't have the time for it anyway so like try to focus on like try to create artificial filters early on this is how i think about this what are one or two of the most important things that that make, can make a poor interviewer into at least a good interviewer or, or from good to great? Like what, what is the non-obvious thing there? Okay, this sounds weird, but record the interviews, uh, have a transcript and afterwards read it again yourself. There's tools to do that actually. There's like metaview.ai, for example. There's other tools, but worst case, just like do it like YouTube, uh, Zoom offers all of that, you know, record it and transcript it's something where you can just go back and look at the actual interview. And what you will notice is like a classic one is like an engineer talking to a female candidate and talking 90% of the time. And then afterwards writing something like this person doesn't have strong opinions. You know, that's super common. That's something you can do. Another one is being really, really aware what the role should do and ask them actual problems that you face and how they would tackle them. And have a good enough understanding about the problem that your bullshit sensor is like working, that you know when somebody is like talking nonsense, you know, or talking stuff that you have tried that's obviously not working. That's the two, one, the two things I would do. Talk about, uh, let's zoom out a little bit. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are the big debates that are happening right now in remote work or distributed work? And, and where, where, where do you find yourself on, on something? Like what are the most contrarian uh, beliefs you have? You know, we talked a little bit about private equity last time, but um, in terms of doing, you know, building distributed companies well, what, what are the big debates and, and most contrarian beliefs you have on it? Um, I, I, again, I, I consider most of those discussions complete BS. Like people have different preferences and they are like so hung up with their own opinion, like whatever. Uh, my, the big debates right now you have usually around uh, asynchronous communication versus synchronous communication. You know, how important is what? Envision has several hundred people all work on Eastern time. Uh, GitLab has several thousand, like 1,000 something people working all completely asynchronous. Doist is completely asynchronous to the point that they don't even have Zoom calls when they should have them sometimes. So there's like opinions about that, you know, great. I think the answer is in the middle. Jesus, what a shock, right? The other big discussion is usually around salary. So should I pay everybody the same? Should I have like regional, blah, blah, blah. Again, the answer is like in the middle. You want to have competitive salaries because the best people you will talk to will expect international salary and not like 
Mexican, like I live in this little town, like salary, you know, so they will expect an international salary, but international salary still is most likely lower than, for example, a San Francisco salary. So again, the answer is somewhere in the, in the middle, you know. My most contrarian t- take on remote work is remote work is not, it's like standing desks. Like, like, like Eric reached out to me because he thinks I'm an expert for remote work. That to me means like I'm an expert for standing desks. Here's a button, it goes up. Here's a button, it goes down. Yes, it has disadvantages. You need a power plug. It's very heavy. It's more expensive. You need to, maybe people can't get this in where they live. You know, it's like not ideal for everybody. But in the end, it doesn't matter if your company has standing desks. This doesn't make your company succeed or not. You know, so it's, there's, two, there's like, this is my most contrary take. Like right now we have this big arc around remote work, which is pushed by San Francisco because they just realized there's more people in this world. You know, they realized, holy shit, there's people outside of the Bay and even outside of America that have talent, you know, and that have amazing projects to work on. And that is just like mind blowing and that's happening right now. And uh, additionally, we of course have like Corona going on, but that's my contrarian take. So how, how would you reframe what your core expertise is then? I'm good in making shit tweetable. <laughs> Me too. Uh, yeah. That's like literally my, and my second core competence is like making people believe that I'm good in anything at all. <laughs> and that's about it. Uh, everything else is stuff that everybody else can do. It's just like take a problem, break it apart, you know, and like, again, break those problems apart. Most problems you face are not complicated or complex. So you, you tackle complex problems different than complicated ones. You just break them apart, period. You know, everything else is nothing special or magic. Everything else is just ha- having done something that somebody else hasn't done in the past and seeing if it works or not. But to be fair, that gives you like a head start of like maybe two years in reality, you know, maybe three years if you specialize in some certain regions, but everybody who takes three years and just like goes really deep into something learns a lot or like Eric, like talks to like literally every expert in the world uh, or reads like millions of books or like just does, does their job well for two or three years can easily overtake anybody else, you know? So that's how I think about that. Totally. I, uh, I want to open it up in the last five minutes for maybe, maybe a couple questions. Uh, if anyone wants to uh, ask a question, uh, now is the time. Otherwise, uh, I have a couple more I'll ask. I'll give 20 seconds. If I may. So Andreas mentioned, you know, like one of the greatest ways to evaluate people you're hiring is basically hire them to do a contract. But before what minimum, you know, criteria to, to hire someone for that? So my connection dropped again, but I, I will pretend that I heard the whole question. So you basically said, what's the minimum criteria for evaluating people before you get to the stage that you are willing to give them a project? Okay. So basically, let's say you have 10 candidates and you need to compare them, right? That's like a realistic scenario. Early on, go for seniority, like more experience. Doesn't need to be five plus years, but it should be one or two years, you know? Um, Go for people who have experience with very, very similar products because they had like all the learnings. Go with people who have very similar uh, tech stack. Take uh, if you have really unique and new, try to deconstruct your business into, let's say, a 2.2 grid and say, like, what are the aspects of our business? So it might be uh, caps, mobile apps, uh, ride sharing, you know, and maybe uh, just like hyper growth, you know, and then that's Uber, 
you know, like that's like the four aspects. And maybe you can get people who did worked in companies who did one of those building blocks if they didn't do all of them and then hire them specifically because of that background. That's how I would evaluate them uh, early on. If you still have too many people, give them what I do is um, basically a take home challenge where you define a super simple little thing that's very close to what you actually have as a challenge, as an actual product, maybe like a simplified version of your product. Give it to them. Do like a few little things in there, like make it make a few things intentionally wrong or have like some tests broken or like little things that you care about that they should get but don't have to get. Give it to them and give them one simple challenge to do that. And like they should do that, get back to you when they have done it, evaluate, great. And then additionally, have a one-hour call with them. Ideally, like have like the, your engineering lead should do that, but like have an engineering call with them and pair on the same code base they just worked on now with a little bit more challenging task. And they should work on this while you feedback, help, whatever, but you work on this together and see how they actually tackle different problems that they will face in reality. So the concept here is like take home challenge and pair programming. And I would combine them because one of the biggest problems you have with pair programming is you can't just give somebody something they haven't, haven't seen before and just say like, okay, now do that. And I watch you. That's super stress. Combine those and you have a very good early filter. And that should get you from like, with these two things, you should easily get from like down to like one or two that you really consider. Can we quickly also jump into what kind of startups I would like to exist? Yes, let's, let's end with that, please. Yeah, I, I feel like this is the right group. <laughs> yes, request for startups, Andreas. Is, that, is that anybody here like wants to start a startup? I don't know, a few people? Yeah, cool. Everybody, man. <laughs> okay, Everybody. cool. Uh, so like me and Eric discussed this once, like the really big things right now in remote work is, in my opinion, obviously private equity, like buy companies, uh, fire people, replace them with better people remote, optimize operations, have squads doing that. and by the next company. I assume you don't have, let's say several hundred millions or billions of a private equity fund behind you. And I will just skip this one idea and like move on to the next one. Um, so there's short-term things that would need to be existing and there's long-term things that need to be existing. Right now we're in a situation where a lot of people have their normal business broken completely, but still need to make money to survive. How can you get those businesses online in a way that doesn't overwhelm you, overwhelm them. I think there's multiple things that exist already and many of them spaces are noisy. I get it. But maybe you can take a different, maybe you can do a different take on some of those ideas. And I, like a friend of mine is a yoga teacher. She asked me for recommendations for what tools she should use to continue her classes. You know, I had to send her three where I'm not even sure if she gets them because they're like a little bit, they look like overcomplicated, you know, uh, two which are not really what she needs, but okay. And another two or three, which are I've never heard about, but apparently exist. So there's like still category winners in a lot of areas where you can win by bad, having a better product, having a better com- customer sending and just do this properly. This is the, the oldest short term. And that can go from online education for kids, telehealth, uh, getting retail online, getting coaching and training online, all this kind of stuff. This won't go away after Corona. And this is almost like the same thing as we had back then when Y Combinator started. A lot of the Y Combinator companies that started back then, they weren't the first one doing it. They weren't the best ones doing it. They just persisted and stayed along enough and then just grew casually over time and now are really big companies. And I think we will have the same now with remote. So 
while I love if everybody has like a completely unique, amazing new idea, feel free to also take something you care about and just like do it better and just like focus on that. That's number one, short-term ideas. Um, Long-term ideas, how I think about uh, my fund. And also I think this is where the more, the more the classic venture investing part comes in. There's two kinds of startups I invest in. One is improving uh, startups that improve remote work. And the other one is startups that leverage remote work in a unique way. Improving remote work can mean the obvious ones, which are communication tools. Completely noisy space. Unless you have a fresh take, tries to stay out of, try to stay away from this. There's still people who will make new winners. You know, like Slack isn't the answer. Like there will be some asynchronous communication tool that has like a little bit of synchronous communication part in it that will beat Slack. I'm 100% sure about that. You know, it will be closer to threads.com and Google Docs, you know, maybe with a little bit of tandem, but this will beat Slack. That's for sure. You can try that. I'm the first person to invest if you have a good product. But in general, super noisy space, be careful. The other ones are global payroll, global benefits, all this kind of stuff. The problem you have with this is there's a limited set of categories that make sense to do global. And all of them require like really strong, complex operations. But there is still stuff that makes sense to just think about what if I take something and now approach it on a global scale? This is another category. Another category here is um, uh, uh, remote teams in general are just a very attractive early stage customer. So maybe your tool isn't actually a remote tool, but you target remote teams early on because they have complexity needs compared to a bigger team, but are willing to just say, fuck this, I buy it, even if it's half done, because we need this right now. So consider maybe not doing like a, like a tool for remote, but a normal SaaS company that makes sense in general for any digital knowledge company, but you start with remote teams as an early customer segment just to have a very good customer to start with. Another group I look at is how does society change when more people work remote? What are the differences? How do villages, cities, hubs change? What are new opportunities for rural areas? I, I recently invested in a company that's focusing completely on rural economic development. There's a lot of stuff to be done in that area, you know, but you should have obviously like a, a unique take on it and all this kind of stuff. So there's like multiple areas how you can deconstruct this. And um, one of the biggest problem I see when people think about startups that should exist because of remote work they look at the, the problem they face every day, which is communication. The problem now is that everybody has the same problems. Everybody is looking at that and everybody's like, hey, you know what? Project management is hard. I will come up with my own project management tool. You know, hey, you know what? To-dos lists are hard. I will come up with my own to-do list. You know what? Budgeting is hard. I come up with my own budgeting app. All of a sudden, you have like 5 million different remote communication tools. You know, try to avoid that and think a little bit more like second degree what are the implications that indirectly come out of that? Because society won't change. Like we will be more remote in future. This is not going away. We will work more online. We will more work internationally. We won't, we will, we will, we will hire amazing people in, every, in different parts of the world. And this will just become more normal. So th like think a little bit more second degree uh, uh, effects. Think a little bit more like uh, what are things that you have like early stage remote uh, as customer or think about people who didn't consider themselves as being selling online. What to, should they need to do to actually be able to sell online and solve one thing for them really well. Calendly right now has the time of their life because it's a scheduling app where you can just schedule appointments. 
everybody's like every teacher uh, or meditator or like coach I know right now is using that to keep their practice alive. Do one thing really well for these kind of people. And a part of that, listen to whatever Eric says, because he's the master and I'm the least experienced investor you will ever talk to. I'm also like the smallest fund you will ever talk to. So like, listen to Eric. He's like the $100 billion fund expert with Mark Zuckerberg in his speed date. Okay. But big in our hearts, Andreas, big in our hearts. Uh, one, another challenge of remote work is expressing appreciation. Uh, so uh, I want everyone to unmute their mics and give Andreas a round of applause. Andreas, thank you for, for joining. Well done. Well synchronized. Well synchronized. Uh, Andreas, thank you so much for, for coming on. This, this has been a lot of fun. Cool. Uh, yeah, my, my email, address, email address is firstname at lastname.io, andreas at klinger.io. My Twitter is first name, last name. DMs are open. Uh, my fund is called remotefirstcapital.com. Everything quite straightforward, I guess. Uh, yeah. Ping me if I can help. You, we'd, go, we'd, you'd be lucky to have him on, on your cap table and, and to have his time. So and we're very grateful. Uh, appreciate Andreas. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at Village Global dot VC.